Okay. All right, right. let's do this. Let's do this. Quit playing around. Let's get serious. Let's get serious. Good afternoon and welcome to the Hard Luck Show. I'm your certified, qualified West Side host, Steve Lucky Luciano. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into the greatest show on earth. It's the Hard Luck Show, coming at you from the W Hotel in Hollywood, California. Yeah. Yeah. Sitting across from me, my co-host and partner is Chumahan Bowen, American Indian, Southern Californian, elegant barbarian, and here to help all of us learn something once again. Yes. Mm. And on sound, our engineer, our sound technician, Blue Eyes. Sean Lewis. Sean Lewis. Certified audio professional. Engineer for the hard love show. NPR yes. tried to yes, hire indeed. NPR actually tried to just hire him away and Sean uh, turned yeah, him down. Well, you got to turn him down. <laughs> Listen yeah, to him, Mar. We, 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 uh, you know, man, there, there, there's a lot about the hard luck show today we're going to explore. That's right. right. Uh, That's exactly. Some of our DNA, right? Right. Some of the DNA of this show we are diving into today. Uh, real important content uh, with us, you know, and uh, within our show and our people. And uh, what do we got, Juman? All right. So in and then I've been talking to our friend and our, our producer, uh, Danny Marillo. Yes. Everybody knows like that fantastic hair. Uh, underground hair. scholars. Underground scholars. Uh, yeah. Mr. Marillo, um, we're working in conjunction with other organizations to actually shine a light on some serious and very important issues. Uh, and you were explaining to me how you wanted that done. How is that going to be done or how does that look? For sure. So um, thank you for having us here, right? Um, really, you know, You're very welcome, it. of course, of course. Back, I'm happy to be back here at the Hard Luck Show. Yes. So, you know, through... A, a collaboration with the Hard Luck Show and the California Families to Abolish Solitary Confinement. Mm-hmm. Um, we were granted a, some funding from the Unlock the Box uh, campaign to um, do a series of stories around solitary confinement in California, um, the California Prison Hunger Strike Movement, um, and kind of uh, really collect stories from people that were in solitary confinement and that ex- have that experience, but also um, wanted to invite um, legal scholars, um, academics and mental health experts to have like a a co-facilitated interview to really kind of um, unpack solitary confinement from its history to its purpose to um, the results of the hunger strike of um, Asker versus uh, Brown, which was a a lawsuit that kind of uh, ended long-term solitary confinement in California. And really um, it's a, it's a way for other States to use as a toolkit, right. Or, 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 um, as a as a way to learn about what they can do to address the issue of solitary confinement in their state, but also to highlight the stories of those that have been inside and the transformation that they've made after being out of solitary confinement. Right. Mm. Excellent That's overview. Amazing. That was a uh, sky-high overview. Thank you very much. So right now in this episode, we're focusing on 
solitary confinement in California, and also gang validation. There's some people that are listening right now that already know what that is. And then there are some people, Mr. and Mrs. Earbuds, that are listening right now that don't understand what gang validation means in the context, in the Mm. milieu, if you will, of the prison system. So we have two esteemed guests and experts along with us, uh, and the order does not... Uh, state anything in the level of value they're both equally valuable titans in their own right the first guest that we have with us that's going to sit in and explain a lot about the history and the law is if i understand correctly uh a law professor from university of california irvine a relatively new law school if i'm not mistaken however she obviously has been writing for a very long time. In fact, it's not very many legal scholars that get their books printed by the Oxford Press. That's some <laughs> serious stuff. Nice. That's some fly by night. Nice. So, uh, <laughs> Professor Karamet Ryder, am I saying that right? Just right. Okay. And she told us to call her Karamet, but I'm going to stick with Professor Ryder. Uh, because uh, that's just the way I was raised. Right. I don't know that's how right. you were raised. Right. Can we compromise? Professor Karamet. I love that. Professor Karamet. <laughs> and if anybody's curious, that's Turkish for blessed one. And certainly she is. Yeah, I've like read that. through um, her books, which generally... Uh, one is called Mass Incarceration, Keynotes in Criminology and Criminal Justice Series. Mass Incarceration. Uh, and the other book is 237 Pelican Bay, right? Was that the right title? It, I bought the Kindle right. version. Okay, very good. <laughs> I read both. I've never seen the Kindle version. Cool. Yeah. Damn. Is, yeah. He's reading your publications <laughs> in ways you didn't even know existed, huh? Right. Did you see the drawings Crazy. in the Kindle version? Yeah. Wow. They, they can put everything good. on there. That's I got to check that out. <laughs> right. So there's that. Uh, and then also we have with us Michael, who's been on the show before, right? Legal right. Mind. Um, and Michael, I always have trouble saying your last name. How do I say your last name properly, brother? Savedra. Savedra. I keep saying Savage. I keep saying Michael Savage. <laughs> <Savage. laughs> but no, he's got the glasses. Like uh, you got the glasses on today. And, and, and Michael Savedra. Uh, how, why don't you tell us what you do with organizations and also a little bit about your experience as it, as it, as it relates to solitary confinement. For sure. For sure. So, um, I, since I was about 16 years old, um, actually even before then, um, as a teen, I was in and out of juvenile hall and then I was sent to prison at about 17 I had my first experience with solitary confinement, I believe, in 1989, I want to say, in Corcoran Shoe, when it had just opened up, um, right before Pelican Bay Shoe had Mm. opened up in 1990. Mm. Um, I was fortunate enough to be doing a small sentence, so I was released. Uh, After about two years, I was paroled from the shoe. Um, And then uh, after that, I had caught another case, and in 1996, um, I still owed him shoe time because I paroled. I, I was uh, put placed in the in the shoe or solitary confinement, as they call it. Which, for a lot of people who don't know, I think it's important to also like give a little bit of background of what the shoe is, because we just say that word very lightly, or mm-hmm. we say what mm-hmm. sol- we just use the word solitary confinement a lot um, in California, especially in the CDCR um, context. Solitary confinement is a cell where typically you're p- placed by yourself or another person. Um, with very limited access to any type of resources, um, your property limitations, like you can only have, it's ridiculous, up to like five 
um, books. And it depends on where you're at. Some places like AdSeg, you're only allowed a, a Bible and an address book, right? Right. You can't even have a dictionary or or any type of book. So what do you do in that cell? You're just there with nothing, right? Mm-hmm. No type of resource. Right. You don't have access to a yep. law library. You don't have access to a shower as often as you need or you would like to. Yeah. Um, right. All these things, your, your meals are, are eaten inside your cell. You depend on the guards for every single thing from, from your your food coming into your cell to your, your most trusted legal documents going to the courts, right? So everything is relied yeah. upon these same people who are, are there to oppress you. And literally the cell, uh, the shoe or solitary confinement is meant to break people. I mean, they talked about it in Madrid mm. versus Gomez. Right. The whole, the whole uh, snitch, debrief, or die is the only way you're getting out of solitary confinement. So I think it's important to um mm. to to just highlight that 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 conditions of, of can you say that again repeat that for our listeners one more time snitch pro or die that was right. the only That's way crazy. people were getting out right mm. so so based on that context um my my history i spent over 15 years uh in this last sentence in solitary confinement on a 21 year sentence um mm. Mm-hmm. And then uh, so so just coming out here, being a part of the hunger strikes, being a part of my own litigation against CDCR for uh, for having me in solitary confinement and definitely based on some false um, and inaccurate and, and very made up uh, information. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of it was confidential information. So fighting that. Um, learning the law within solitary confinement without access to a law library, without access to a law school or yeah. professors like our wonderful guest here today, um, <laughs> who I will call professor because I hope t- uh, very soon maybe I might be one of her students, right? No. I would love Undergrad. that. <laughs> I-, I will be applying. Yeah, it but, uh, it do- hey, listen, I'm going to tell you a little something that doesn't hurt to butter up the professor. Right? <laughs> ah. That's the way to go. <laughs> now, uh, big Lux. Now you spent some time in Corcoran Shoe, right? Yes, I did, man. And uh, it was it was later. It was a later date. It was in '94, and I was there for four months. And uh, there was still some uh, residue turmoil from uh, from the shoe scandals out of Corcoran. All you know? right. Well, um, there was a there was pending investigations. There were. Um, regarding I was the, the gladiator the, fight. Hold on, yeah, right, right, right. Let's, let's and put I was a there. pin. Let's, because I, I bet you Professor Ryder has a lot to explain mm-hmm. on exactly. Absolutely, all they were. Do- I ended up there by way of. Um, I was in Avenon. We had a, there was a riot that was involved, and some shoe terms were handed out. And what ended up happening was uh, Kings County couldn't proceed them over to Corcoran Shoe. They were packed or whatever, I think. And uh, they started issuing these like mini shoes that you would do in these institutions. Right. You'd be in their ad seg for six months. Mm-hmm. But it was actually worse than doing a shoe program. Mm-hmm. Right. You've got nothing at all. Right. You and, know? And, and, it, and, it, it, everything's, you're locked down at all times and you come out shocked with the showers. But then they transferred me and at that point in time you had to go from one shoe to another shoe they were like oh you like high secure whatever bullshit so we wound up in the shoe and finishing out another fucking three months in Corcoran shoe right and uh, mm. I can tell you just in that three months the mood and the temperature of everything that happened was like that. that's what was going on man there was a lot of shit going on over there so I think in 80, 89 was like uh, 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 was 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 
was it at its peak or had it really started to start to gain some some legs in 89 i think by 90 it was going right? i think i think yeah. from what i read from um um professor karamet's books mm-hmm. around 89 is when it started to really uh grow and mass yeah. incarceration started to really proliferate or really expand at that point in time um what why if, if i want to if i want to and i don't want to speak out of term but i almost <laughs> want to say they hadn't even fully segregated so even though the yeah, shit that's what i was gonna the say shit that's had been in effect right, like that's we an important knew, part yeah because yeah. all there, come down, right. it was still going down to an extent. Yeah. It still wasn't segregated. They didn't have to. Right. You right. know what right. I'm saying? Yeah. Right. The well, law hadn't started separating. And, and so, I think that's important, though, because there's a difference between solitary confinement spent at Pelican Bay yeah. and solitary mm-hmm. confinement spent at Tehachapi or Corcoran, mm-hmm. where it's in, mm-hmm. it's integrated. Right. So no, there's no. more of a chance of, of getting harmed, killed, etc., especially when they were shooting mm-hmm. people, setting up sure. the gladiator Sure. This, this I think, mm-hmm. well, all right, so hold on. A second uh so this i think is a good place for professor karamit to step in because i think right. <laughs> I, I by reading through her books about the history of it it sounded or at least if i recall and you correct me if i'm wrong but george jackson who was mm-hmm. uh, a member of the gorillas uh which was like sort of the black panther affiliate or relation inside prison Mm-hmm. Uh, was trying to escape or was accused of trying to escape and some people helped mm-hmm. him uh, some prison guards uh, died I think about seven maybe four or three were injured mm-hmm. three three officers and two uh, white prisoners were killed right and and so then started this movement towards this kind of solitary confinement that was seemed like from what I read was still inside the institutions. Other institutions hadn't been built. Mm-hmm. And that whole formalized system hadn't even been started yet. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of mm-hmm. walk us through that a little bit and explain uh, how the, how it evolved? Yeah. So you know, I think there's especially when we think about supermaxes like Pelican Bay and Corcoran that were built in the 80s and are these hyper-modern facilities. Yeah, I mean, and mm-hmm. you guys you guys are doing a good job start, sort of starting to capture. You're focused on how you have no privileges. But I think for the audience listening, I mean, we're talking about a concrete box, right? Imagine like a wheelchair-accessible bathroom stall except nothing in it, except a concrete ledge for a bed. And no windows often, right? Yep. And, yeah. and often the lights on 24 hours a day. So, so you, you know, I think what you experience there is the strip down of you can't have a book. You don't get to go out to the yard. You don't get to have family visits. But I think just imagining the physical space. And so, so you're, you know, talking about Corcoran and Pelican Bay, it's this poured concrete cell, right? It's like all just one solid piece that everything is automated and there's no need for human contact. Right. But that was, that was like the institutionalization of decades of prison systems trying to figure out how to isolate people, mm-hmm. especially people mm-hmm. that they felt like were a threat to the legitimacy of the system. And that all starts in the 1970s and in California, it's with George Jackson and everything he exemplifies, but it's just, I think it's important to realize it's its happening all over the country, right? I think more people probably know about Attica and the, the incarcerated people there rising up, but it started at San Quentin with George Jackson, who at the time of his alleged escape attempt is an internationally renowned figure who has published one book about his experiences, incarceration and his um, politicization and kind of awakening as he's in prison of his of his rights and the ways he's being oppressed as an African-American man. 
and he's organizing and he's educating other people who are incarcerated with him. And the prison system starts to see him as a threat, right? I mean, he's someone who has an international following. He's a best-selling author. Uh, and there's, there's, I mean, I think one wow. of the most disturbing things about George Jackson is that we don't know what happened, right? There, right. They, if you talk to a correctional officer, you'll get one story. You talk to an incarcerated person who is there, you'll get another. You talk to a lawyer. And I was actually just looking at the Wikipedia page today. It changes all the time. It's kind of entertaining about George Jackson and kind of disturbing because, it, you know, you read these stories with this authority, but there's no evidence to back up what actually happened. Um, so George Jackson was accused of being involved in an in-prison murder, and he's being held in the Adjustment Center at San Quentin in the 1970s. The Adjustment Center is the prototype of Pelican Bay and Corcoran, right? It's a, it's an old dungeon, literally. If you go to San Quentin today, you can walk through the yard and see it's like underground where the Adjustment Center is. Just think about that label, the adjustment. Yeah, we're going to... Yeah. Right. Doesn't that sound like Doesn't that sound like 1984 language? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're gonna... he just need to be adjusted. <laughs> he just needs a little adjusting. He'll how, come aboard. How different is that from the Stalin term of like, oh, we're yeah. gonna send you for re-education? Yeah. Yes. Mm. Right. Same you're gonna right. right. And, yeah. and today, and today, CDCR has therapeutic treatment modules, uh, which right. I think is even worse than adjustment center. That uh, is, to be clear, that is a cage on wheels. Um, cool. Where you go if you're going to the law library or to um, therapy, group therapy, quote unquote. I don't know yeah, how cage. you can have therapy. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, mean, I don't, I don't mean to stop you, but I just, like big, a lion. big Lux's face when you say cage on wheels, it was a look That's of dismay great. and shock. He can't even believe that. So you're telling me that uh, in some of these situations, they'll put an inmate in a cage on wheels in order to take him to the library? Right, Michael? Anyone ever experienced this? No, they won't literally put you in a cage in wheels. But what she's saying is, like, they have this. So because of the um, uh, all these, like, the Coleman case lawsuits, right? Yeah. Where they said because of Madrid, like, they're saying this is inhumane. This is causing people mental health uh, issues, right? They had to bring in these modules. They had to give therapy to people in there so and group therapy and even part of the step down program the uh the litigation part of the settlement was to give people like group uh group stuff right like different type of activities so they put like a room like this size they'll put these stand-up cages some of them some of them you could barely sit down on a metal stool but they're like a barber cage right like just this big literally you can't even really move around they'll put like five cages in here and then they'll have whoever the therapy person or whoever talking to people like that so you're all in stand-up cages and you can't like it has plexiglass on the sides so you can't even like really talk to people and it has plexiglass on the top and it has a little tray slot where you put your hands through to get handcuffed and sometimes they use that as a library most libraries are like that they have a little small desk no Listen bigger this. than this. this. A little cage, a human cage. You cannot even stretch or, That's not or human, anything. Yeah. You can't uh, even lay down. Like you're stuck. It's like a telephone booth. Yeah. There you go. Exactly it's like, like an old booth. school yeah. telephone yes, booth. Yeah, that's perfect. And that's you got to be in if you want to look at any law books, right? Yep, you got to be With a small that. little stool probably. Yep. And a little corner desk. 
So this is, again, one of the things I write about is that you see the same things again and again with different Mm -hmm. labels, right? So you've got the adjustment center at San Quentin, and then there's all this litigation, and then you get a therapeutic treatment module. And it's like if you give it a nice enough name, people won't notice how disturbing it is. Oh, man, you Um, said that right there. (laughs) That's true. You know, the the interesting thing, too, is you guys keep bringing up Madrid and Gomez, and I, I reviewed that case, and I don't know that people really understand. So part of... <clears throat> well, pr- Professor, how do you want to lay this out? Because you're talking a little bit about the history of how what sh- what Corcoran and Pelican Bay are is essentially a final institutionalization of policies mm-hmm. and attempts by the CDC to to try to to try to do this solitary confinement and try to really isolate individuals. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. So should I? Yeah, so I'll finish about George Jackson, and then it leads it leads straight into Madrid for right. better or worse. Right. So, Go so Jackson it. is in the adjustment center, right? We get it's hard to not get tripped up over these terms and the Kafkaesque play we're in, right? right. But right. but Jackson Jackson's in the adjustment center, and he has a meeting with his lawyer on August twenty first, nineteen seventy one. So this is this resonant day. If you talk to anyone who works in the prison system. They'll tell you they remember Sunday, August 21st, 1971, when Jackson allegedly tried to escape from San Quentin. So the story is he had a meeting with his lawyer. His lawyer brings in a nine millimeter gun inside a tape recorder and a wig. And Jackson puts the wig on and has the gun in the wig. And he goes back to the adjustment center and he escapes and he's wielding the gun and he runs out onto the prison yard and he gets shot by the officers in the guard towers on the yard. And they run back into his cell and there's three officers that are stabbed to death and two prisoners. Now, there's some far-fetched stuff in this story, right? First, I want to point out... were really big in the 1970s, but they weren't big enough for a wig and a 9 millimeter gun. Not only that, but like, what's the wig supposed to do? Like... Hide the gun. He had the gun in his wig. Yeah, but but how do you not see that? Like, that sounds crazy. You're in prison and you got a gun and a wig. How did they not know? That does not sound like a well-thought-out They never found the gun. They never found the gun. And all the people, the three officers and and the two prisoners who were dead, they were stabbed. So there's this story about this gun being snuck into San Quentin. And the only person who was shot was George Jackson by the officers in the guard tower. Wait, hold on. Uh, so let me let me check the pulse of the guys that that, that yeah. actually spent some time away for a minute. Steve, yeah. does any of that sound right to you? Man, it sounds all bad right there. M- Michael, <laughs> it smells like shit. Right, Michael, <laughs> does any of that sound right to you? Does that sound? Was that sound weird? Nah, it doesn't sound weird. <laughs> it sounds perfect. Sounds accurate, huh? Right. Exactly. It sounds, <laughs> sounds accurate to me. Sounds like a frame up. All right. Yeah. All right. Go ahead, normal professor. Normal right. logic of CDCR. Yeah. Okay. So then, what happens? So then there's this amazing crackdown where everyone who had any alleged involvement with this escape, this alleged escape that seems, you know, a lot of people argue it was just a setup to murder Jackson because he was causing so much trouble. That sounds right. That sounds right. That sounds really How how much does this parallel? Like they did a Fred Hampton. Right. I was just going to say, how much? This isn't isn't crazy, right? Outside of prison, we have the investigation to know these things were happening in the 70s. Right. In the 70s, there was also, at least in Los Angeles, I understand, uh, there was also active efforts by uh, the police and the authorities and the FBI to discredit and break up the yep. Black Panthers, correct? Yeah, of course. Yep. Correct. All right, so this correct. is in parallel, inside and outside. All right, go ahead. Yep. Thank you. For and me. part of what 
was so scary to people running the prisons was that things on the outside were really radical and it looked like it was creeping inside. Right. <laughs> um, so, so, so everyone who has any alleged involvement with Jackson's alleged escape attempt is locked down. So they're put in these conditions Michael's been talking about in solitary confinement. But in these old San Quentin was built in the 1880s. Right. So right. In these old mm-hmm. like literally dungeons with dirt floors and no running water uh, and very little evidence that they were actually involved over the next few decades. Only one of the guys of the uh, five who were um, allegedly helping Jackson and were locked down. Only one of them stays in prison. Everyone else's sentences ultimately overturned for their collaboration. And the one who stays in prison is Hugo Pinnell. And he becomes one of the first people transferred to Pelican Bay when it opens in 89 and one of the last people to leave when it closes down in the uh, 2000s. So um, there is this continuous story, right? I think people people think of Supermaxes and Corcoran and Pelican Bay as just part of the prison building boom of the 1980s and 90s. Right. But it is so important to understand them as a kind of slow motion reaction to organizing inside prison in the 70s, and in particular to racial organizing, right? To the idea that there were these gangs, these African-American and Latinx gangs that are scary to the prison system. And so the shoe is indistinguishable from a kind of need to lock down certain races of people who the system sees as dangerous. And I think that gets lost too often in the story is that is that history. And it's not just California, it's Attica, right? Same thing, guys being locked down after Attica continuously in solitary until the state can build these modern supermaxes like Pelican Bay and Corcoran. And so understanding the political history of the institutions, I think, is really important and important context for things like gang validation, which we can get to. Right. Um, And I'll talk about Madrid, but I don't know if we want to pause. I don't know if Michael or others have anything to add. Uh, Michael, do you have anything to add at that point? Because I I really take the professor's point. It's, I think, uh, not even just inside prison, but an overall movement as a reaction to the civil rights and what went on, right? Uh, to figuring out how to stop people from connecting, assembling, getting together politically to have the kind of power and leverage that in America is required in order to get anything changed. Do you have anything else to add to that, um, Michael? Do you have any thoughts? No, I just think that that's a perfect perfect example, but also there are so many others, even with the uh, American Indian Movement, the the Brown Beret Movement. Um, were all infiltrated by the federal government. All of them are also labeled as political prisoners and locked up. And that's where, you know, they say, oh, these gangs started. Leonard but, Peltier. Yes, right. Sir. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, a lot of the Brown Berets that were um, locked up during this time period as well for being activists, you know, they just weren't publicly, um, you know, uh, spotlighted. Right. They didn't mm. get all the publicity. But. They were also part of activism and then the the activism that was going inside prisons during that same time. You had the prisoners rights movement as well. So you had the civil rights movement outside. Now you have the prisoners rights movement. You know, and this is when, um, you know, jailhouse lawyers started really becoming active and, and filing litigation. So I think, yeah. It wasn't only political prisoners, but some of them just happen to also be, you know, jailhouse lawyers. And these people are also considered um, threats to the Mm -hmm. system because they're getting people out. They're suing the system. It's costing them money. So that was also a way to isolate these people. And 
not give them access to the the tools yep. needed to litigate. Right, and this is, I think, a really interesting interesting point because before we launch into uh, Madrid, uh, I believe in um, Karamit's book, she was talking about at one point the California Department of Corrections wanted to put it on ice all of these prisoners who had gotten these prison uh, from before. They'd actually gotten rights, more rights, more habeas corpus rights, expanded ways of uh, affirming their civil rights, right? And so California, as progressive as it so-called is, and Jerry Brown, who most people God. call him, you know, Thank Governor Moonbeam, and he was in <laughs> Laurel Canyon and hanging out with Crosby, Steels, and Nash. By the way, I've got a whole thing on that. <laughs> I'm not going to get into it now, but I got a whole thing on Laurel Canyon. But anyway, the point is, is that um, they moved for legislation at the federal level that shut down the ability. What was the name of that um, bill that was eventually passed by um, Dole? If everyone remembers Dole, he was behind it or he was a proponent yeah. that greatly curbed the rights. I was going to say it's actually it's um, it's fun trivia if you like disturbing trivia. But it's actually all of this started in Arizona. So Arizona had a lot of litigation that they just couldn't get out from under as um, prisoners rights expanded in the 70s. And they did two things that became national phenomenon. First, they were the first to build, build one of these supermaxes. So in the mid-1980s, around 84, 85, they built the first supermax unit that became the prototype for everyone. So when I talked to the guys who designed Pelican Bay, they said, we traveled all over the country to look for what would be the most secure facility, most modern we could build for these guys, right, to, to isolate these quote-unquote worst of the worst who were troubling the system. And when they got to Arizona, their eyes lit up 20 years later when they were telling me about it. Right. They were like, we saw the. it was called the SMU in Arizona, the Security Management Unit. We saw it. And that was what we wanted. We copied it in California. So Arizona one, They build this SMU, this prototype supermax that everyone copies around the country. And at the same time, they start the Arizona legislators draft the Prison Litigation Reform Act to limit people's ability to bring litigation about their conditions of confinement in prison. It takes it years to pass. It actually passes in 1996 under Clinton, another allegedly progressive right. uh, political figure, right? Who's right. responsible right. for a lot of bad things in prison. Um, so the Prison Litigation Reform Act passes in 96, and it basically shuts down litigation. I mean, you look at graphs of people's ability to bring lawsuits from prison, like Section 1983 civil rights cases, habeas cases, um, class action conditions cases. You see these graphs, and after 96, it's just like this incredibly steep drop down to approaching zero. People still managed to do it, but the law was just incredibly restrictive, limiting lawyers' ability to make any money off of representing people in these cases, right. requiring all kinds of procedural hurdles for people who want to bring litigation, including needing to work through the institution mm -hmm. first in these arcane processes. So um, that's, Filing you know, fees to, Arizona first at two fifty, <laughs> then $450 to file a a yep. lawsuit. How hard is it yep. for an inmate to f scratch around four hundred and fifty bucks to file a lawsuit? Oh, don't worry, they got the uh, the, the installment plan, right? So, <laughs> whatever money you get from your family to buy your little hygiene because they don't give it to you, yeah, they're gonna take out twenty percent of that to go to that court filing fee every time until that four hundred is paid off. That's on top of what most prisoners have of restitution. Right, which went up to fifty five percent. So whatever, say your family sends you a hundred dollars, right? right. 
$55 is going to restitution off the top. Right. Then another, what is it, 15, 20% is going to the court to pay off your filing fees. So you're pretty much left with like 10 bucks. Right. And which you to have buy to buy a deodorant. <laughs> right. So. And no food. <laughs> and maybe some beef stew if there's anything <laughs> left over. The, the beef stew. You're borrowing. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the the thing is 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 that because I went through Madrid and I was looking at some of the first of all Madrid's so anybody who's never read a court like a court case an actual decision right, right. that's a lot of people it's a long decision when the when the judge mm-hmm. when the court itself puts in a table of contents to mm-hmm. tell you the different sections they're gonna, <laughs> that's when you know there's a lot being dealt with Man. one of the things that's interesting about it though mm. is that the case um, and I, I really. I really think people should read um, these decisions, mostly because it's beautiful, right? I mean, it's horrifying. And I thought it was a horror story. I mean, those stories in there. What I think, sorry, but I think it was very necessary to read it because visually, you see the horror stories of how humans are being treated. The person who was dipped in boiling water, and these are facts. This isn't like a a fairy tale or made up. These are facts that they had. Yeah, yeah, right. That, that like, is some. It, it shows you the mind one of how racist, how oppressive, and sadistic these guards were busting out people's teeth. Right. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I mean, that's all true. Graphic. It gets that's, very graphic. That's all that's true. Crazy. That's a 100% true. And I and when I'm so that's true. And we will get to that piece of it. But it was like 180 degree water that they were hosing people down, and flesh came right off. Right. All right. Correct. But 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 listen. That's torture, man. That In is, America. Listen, because <laughs> one of the things after. reading reading the professor's books and everything, one of the things that I kind of was left wondering is what's the toll on the guards? Like what happens Mm. to their humanity? And you kind of see that in Abu Ghraib and stuff like that where you see soldiers like doing these weird quasi-masochistic sexual things with the detainees and you wonder how did it get like, how did they get to a place in their mind where they thought, but that's a a further expansion on the concept. But the reason why I want to talk about Madrid first is because... The reason why these cases are important to read, too, is because a lot of times the court, in an effort to save time and just stay straight to the deal, will lay out what these procedures are for gang validation, right? How does someone become either known as a gang member that justifies or gives corrections the ability to throw you in the shoe for an indeterminate amount of time, right? Yeah. Or an associate. Of somebody who's gang blah 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 okay and I was looking at the evidence and this I'm really telling you oh blue eyes because these guys already know think about this one of the ways that you get validated is they've got two types of evidence tangible and intangible <laughs> right not <Isn't that> neat <laughs> tangible and intangible Tangible and, and, is like anything you think of as a First Amendment right, like a drawing or a book you're reading or someone tattoo. you wrote a letter to. Right. <laughs> but 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 it, taking it out of the frame of, of law professors and everybody who understand constitutionality <laughs> and all that stuff that are ready to they've already got pre-launched arguments. Just <laughs> tangible is some shit that you can see or touch or feel. Right. Mm-hmm. So like they're thinking like maybe there's a, a note that you wrote to like a major gang guy and said, I'm glad to be in this gang. I got to tell you, this is the best time I've ever had. A lot of that shit you're not really going to ever see. Right. So mostly what you're going to be dealing with is are the intangibles. Hmm. Intangibles, what's that? Well, you can't see it. You don't really know exactly what it is. It's very amorphous, very fluid. 
We live in a fluid reality. That's just the way it is. <laughs> so is this shit like shaking hands with somebody else? Um, no, that would be tangible. Yeah, yeah you right. can see that, right? Oh, that would be tangible. But you, no, no, no. Wait, there's one more. Go ahead. There's confidential hidden behind yes. a veil of confidentiality oh, that shit. you cannot see, challenge, nor That's even know intangible. what is exactly said. Oh, about. Oh, 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 I'm going to get to that. It's a ghost. I'm going to get to that. So that's the part of the intangible. So the intangible is a source, right? Somebody who says, you know what? I saw Blue Eyes, right? right. right? He was over there giving a pound to Wizard. And fucking, <laughs> right? And you won't know that. And for the intangibles, the corrections office only needs three of those, right? To, right. to say, okay. And not only can it be three, but you can get like six stories, right? You don't know any of them. And if three of the six are false, totally ridiculous, and three are maybe, you're fucked. You're going to the shoe. And you don't get to know which one the corrections is relying on. So You, you don't have, know any of them, maybe. You don't know. Oh, wow. any, well, you don't know a they lot. They may not exist. You, don't, you wouldn't be able to test that. You wouldn't be able yeah. to know. All, and all they'll do, and in the court decision, it says this. The best that will happen is there'll be a general explanation given to you, and they'll ask you your thoughts on it. You can't present evidence. You can't say that's bullshit on Tuesday, right? I was making Pruno over on the East Wing. There's no way I was over there talking to Wizard. All that shit, you can't do that. Because how are you going to prove wow. that shit? You're in a cell. Yeah. You so they'll just ask witnesses. So they'll go like this. They'll go, well, there's some talk. <laughs> that you were over there with Wizard on a certain day at a certain time. How do you feel about that? <laughs> you go like, oh, that's bullshit, man. Fucked up All right, it. let me write yeah. that down. Bullshit. All right. We'll remember yeah. that when we send you to the shoe. Yeah. <laughs> right? right? Am I wrong, Michael? Yeah, that's man, it. I'm sitting here laughing, but it's so fucked up. But yeah. It happens to people every day, man. That's what they call kangaroo court when we go to our so-called, uh, um, what is it, periodical reviews, mm -hmm. right? Classification committee rules where there's the, the warden, the big head honchos there, and they review you. It used to be 180 days right and then it went to six years <laughs> he says, oh uh how are you doing uh they ask yeah. you three questions are you ready to to debrief uh do you have any do you feel like killing yourself or others <laughs> and that's it they're like God, oh dude. you've been here six years you're like you've been clean no no disciplinary infractions you've been doing college courses whatever taking church courses reading the bible etc right. nothing nothing right no not a single infraction no no uh no write-ups but Oh, we have a confidential informant who says you were from 12 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Jesus who Christ. you don't know. Who, says, who you don't know. We're not going to tell you what it says. Right. That you are still uh, on roll call, an active person because you're on roll call, meaning you're still in good standing. That I, I have a, a, a confidential report wrote, wrote on me that said that because you're in good standing means, therefore, because they go to their experts based on the IGI experts, good standing means blah blah blah. Means that you're active, active and, right? And, and, and Still subscribing means, to yeah. that belief, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that bullshit that <laughs> they expert, yeah. right? Expert. He hasn't learned anything. Who, who got his information <laughs> from a fucking informant who probably right. lied and made up shit, right? Because half of them don't know shit. They just want to get the fuck out of there, right? And now you're fucked. You have to come back another six years, and we'll talk about this again. Unless yeah, you want to debrief. We'll see if you get it justice. Right. Yeah. Right. To be clear, so every the entire... 
Go to, ahead. To, to, initially, yeah, pr- to initially validate you, you're correct. They need three pieces, right? Right. But on your reviews to keep you... One. It just need one more, one piece of yeah. evidence. Every right. six years. One piece. Because they already That's got it. the three. That's the craziest right? thing I've ever heard. Don't mess around and, and draw some some kind of Aztec or Indian oh, indigenous yes. symbol because oh. if it happens to be a Chimali or it happens to be uh, the Cesar Chavez flag, uh, I forget the, the exact name right. of it, uh, or, or a dragon. Let's say you like dragons, but you're black. That's a wrap. You are. Uh, you know what they use me? <laughs> my one year, for my years. review, uh, for my review, they use... A birthday card that I signed for my cellmate, and I don't—I didn't even put my name. All I do, my signature was a turtle with a joint in his mouth. <laughs> they got the gang experts. They got the gang experts. To, <laughs> and they knew, analyze, they knew it was me. They go, we know that's you because everybody, we heard everybody calling you turtle. Why were you called turtle? That's a like a childhood name. Okay. Like elementary Turtle school. with a blunt, huh? Yeah. All right. Wait, right. you're sure that wasn't like your gang tattoo? No, they've been calling me Turtle since like elementary school. <laughs> right. Well, haven't you been in a gang since <laughs> elementary school, man? Right. All right. <laughs> so, um, Professor Ryder, w- why don't you also lay out, oh, by the way, the quality control on those things. Mm. And they were saying like the judge that was riding the case, uh, the decision, he said like, yeah, there's quality control and sometimes you don't get you know, validated, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, however, out of like 600 of these bullshit things, only like two didn't go forward. Mm-hmm. So it gives you an indication of how much their bullshit review goes board, The uh, law, it's the LEIU. It's their Sacramento office. Right. That, yeah. Right. Quality control. And you it's know what, too, man? It's the system. It's the CDCR. It is. And, and, and I don't know what the validation system is in in regards to city and state, but I more what I'm trying to get at is the... um. Uh, the stain that it has on you because I don't know yeah. how they go about validating you in the city through oh. the sheriffs and all that. But the gang database. Right. So right. Because when when the, I was in a supermax facility up in Wayside mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, man, they these IGI cops line There's o- up. OCS. Right, OCS, yeah. that's it. They pull up. And that was like the inst- the task force for mm-hmm. uh, the L.A. County jails, right? They pull up and they like put up pull up with a mobile office, and they just line up and start calling mm-hmm. everybody's Take not everybody's the name. They're taking like <laughs> they're calling up certain names, right? No sooner does one dude go up, man, they're like ah, oh, it's a gang it's a gang and right away they're pulling you out. You name. Where you say you're from? Like, I didn't say I'm from anywhere off of the shirt. Yeah, yeah. I get them though every up. time. Yeah, man. I don't and have no I got taken out of out of normal general population, and you're now being put into mm-hmm. a segregated population, right? In a hole. In a hole. And that fault, that stigma, that all mm-hmm. follows you. Yep. They can use that as a form of to a validate you in, in prison. State. Once you get you, convicted, right? You don't right. have and your case and your case. If it was a gang related case, right? right. Professor Ryder, um, help us navigate this. I thought <laughs> for I thought that one of the foundations, if not the keystone of American rights and justice, is your ability to confront accusers and to. Uh, know who is accusing you and not self-incriminate. How is it possible that the corrections department is able to avoid having to deal or confront uh, that issue uh, of constitutionality? When you enter that prison door, you check your rights at the door. Yeah. 
all of those things. You're right. You know, all of the things we think of as fundamental rights. Like I said, we think of ourselves as having a right to free speech. You don't have that right to associate or write or read or talk to who you want in prison. Right. You don't have a right to be free from searches and seizures. You don't have you don't you lose your constitutional rights within the prison disciplinary system to confrontation, to know the evidence against you. And this is a huge part of what's wrong with shoes and supermaxes and solitary is that there's no oversight, right? We have never seen, this has been one of my biggest critiques of Madrid. Like you said, Judge Henderson, one of the most liberal judges in America, takes at face value the prison system's claim that they know how to validate gang members. And he never asks in Madrid, what are you doing? How are you doing it? Can I see the evidence? It's crazy. It's a court of law. And and they've got all this oversight. They never asked. And years later, we're still we still don't know. Right. The only assessments that have ever been done outside of the prison system about how this gang validation process works and how accurate it is has been post hunger strikes when there has been a little bit, you know, like 100 members of a class. And the lawyers have had the right to look at their files. And the error rates are insane when they look at these cases, right? They find that in every file there's made up evidence for which there's no uh, backup, right? Just literally like made up a story about a confidential informant who doesn't exist. Let me ask um, you this. Let me ask you this because it sounds crazy to me what you're saying in the sense that <laughs> the United States was founded by, and to a certain extent, deadbeats and criminals, um, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, I don't know why that shocks people, but the truth of the matter <laughs> is, is like the dregs of, of, of Britain, right, came over <laughs> here, and then everything that happened between them and the Indians was theft and contract breaking and all this violation of everything. Okay, so why, and then <clears throat> because of the treatment that that we got, that we got from the king, King George, Mad King George, and the Star Chamber, and all this oppressive mon- monarchy, monarchy stuff, why is it then we find ourselves in the eight, 70s, 80s, and 90s unable to, pre- has America always just said once you're convicted, you no longer can participate as a full civilian, and that became a basis for um, providing a, a labor force and or a way to take people out of the system? Or how does that work? I know you've looked into that. Yeah, I think there's two issues. One is that as long as punishments have existed, there has been an idea of civil death. So even in Britain, right, before anyone came to the U.S., there was an idea that if you committed a crime, you lost all your citizens' rights. Right. Um, so, you know, people used to be banished or executed or, right, prisons are relatively new in the scheme of punishment. But this idea of once you commit a right, you kind of lose your – once you commit a crime, you kind of lose your um, ability to be treated as part of the social contract. So there's right. there's civil death, and that's part of it. That's that's this intuitive idea that keeps people from being uncomfortable with all the rights you leave at the at the – threshold of the prison. But there's also in the U.S., there's slavery. There's an exception. There's an explicit exception in the abolition of slavery in the Constitution that if you're being punished, you can be enslaved. And so together that it makes for a pretty vicious stripping of rights, this idea that punishment is enslavement in the U.S. and they're fundamentally integrated. That's an, it's just incredible to me, and it's obvious from the like you can see that loophole there in the in the writing. Um, so it's not a loophole; it was very intentional, right? One of one of my claims about punishment is that we have to start, stop saying "Oops, this happened by accident." 
and start understanding the negotiations that led to really intentional decision making, right? The idea that people often say, oh, we tried to make sentences more fair and in the end they got longer and that was a mistake. And it's wow. like, no, there was a negotiation like and the people who wanted longer sentences won the negotiation. How does that leverage in the negotiation work then? I mean, where is the disconnect? Because like you said, you're, you're, you're 100% right. It's not an accident. Yes. There's, there's people that uh, are, are at the higher levels that are thinking about how to organize society and who they want to benefit and who they don't want to benefit. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Where's the, where's the, what's going on with the, the, the inability to properly leverage or negotiate on the behalf of not just prisoners, but like everybody's rights? Like, how does that work? Why is it falling apart? You could answer that. I would <laughs> we, think a professor of law from UC Irvine. That's what I would think. <laughs> well, you know, I actually, I think sometimes people get depressed when I say stop, stop saying it was an accident or a loophole or unintentional. But I think that some of it is actually the problem of people feeling helpless, right? Of thinking like uh, it was, this was, this outcome was inevitable. And I think some of what's so important is having these conversations we're having right now where you understand the negotiations that were happening and people have more of a sense of it not being inevitable, right? Like this outcome wasn't predetermined. Um, one side just lost, but I think understanding that there was a possibility of another outcome is really, really important for mobilizing people and giving them hope to say, oh, there were two paths and we took the wrong path, but now we know there was an alternative and how can we all mobilize better around those alternatives. Now that we're talking about mobilization, I am kind of curious, why would corrections eventually get at least come to the table for hunger strikes? For, for people who didn't seem to care about prisoners in the first place, how did the hunger strikes actually get them there? I'm, I'm almost thinking about the, you know, some of these guards that are probably really sick, and yet somehow they, the hunger strikes worked. Why did that, why did that work? I would say um, because one, um, the organizing that took place on the inside, right? Yeah. That people that who at one point in their lives had been at, at, at odds against each other, different racial and geographic groups, came together and agreed to work as a collective, right? To put um, prisoners' rights at the forefront, right? That and also, I would say that the organizing that was inspired because of that organizing on the inside the organizing that it inspired on the outside because Pelican Bay has been, since its inception, has been litigated, right? Lawyers and prison uh, incarcerated lawyers have been litigating against the conditions of Pelican Bay since it was open, right? But it wasn't until a combination of things, right? People organizing together, the Asker case, right? Um, families, organizers, professors, students, everybody coming out here as a collective and bringing that to the forefront. Because other than that, if, if it was just up to the incarcerated people and the lawyers, it, it would still be in the legal realm. Yep. And it wouldn't yep. be outside into public discourse. And, and Danny, I think it's about, 
I think, and this is maybe another way in which it can feel less overwhelming and more susceptible to organization. It's about who controls the narrative. And part of why I said I was so disappointed in Madrid and the idea that Judge Henderson deferred to the prison officials saying these are these are dangerous gang leaders because we said so is because it allowed the prison system to control the narrative. And I think what the hunger strikers did that was so phenomenal was take over the narrative. And and the prison system came to the table because they saw that they were losing, right? That that you guys were able to to come out in a public way and demonstrate that they were lying, right? There was no, like they said, they're going to kill each other. And you said, no, here's a nonviolent, like we're, we are capable of doing the most powerful nonviolent concerted action you could imagine. So you're you're with your actions demonstrating the lie of the of the gang validation in the prison system. And I think that 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 was just phenomenally powerful. And and that is the question often is how do how do the oppressed people take over the narrative in a way that's just incredibly damning in the end to, to the to the prison system? Yeah. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, I would like to say though, also like you say, you know, non uh, nonviolent, but I would say there was a lot of violence used, and I'm saying this from a personal perspective, like watching my neighbor die, watching people who were starving, right. um, you know, going through this, and the guards being more punitive and and uh, you know, sadistic, like removing us from ourselves and making sure right. searching ourselves, making sure we didn't have food right. in ourselves to even survive. I think that's very uh, violent, right? Making sure a person Absolutely. pretty much starves to death, making sure that they didn't receive any type of of medical assistance, right? Telling the nurses, oh, they'll be all right. They're doing this to themselves. Right. Um, they could just eat if they want to be healthy or they don't want to die, right? Right. And, and going even a step further and asking Judge Henderson or Judge whoever, I forgot the name, but it probably wasn't Judge Henderson, but they asked the federal court judge for an order to force feed us. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's not violent. Tying a person down and forcing a tube down their throat. Why? Why, you asked? Because of a lot of those things you said, yes. But there's also the other main thing, capitalism. Our bodies are money. How much are our bodies worth, Professor, a year? How much do they make? In Pelican Bay? Mm -hmm. You you cost the system about $90,000 a year. $90,000 a person. Right. You're so worth much more, right? If you think population. of that as, a, as money going to CDCR, you're worth much more mm-hmm. in prison than you are in college. You, uh, you know, wait, let's stop right there. Someone to a top Cal State, twenty five thousand dollars a year at most, right? We're let's let's about. let's get granular on that. Okay, so yeah. let's say your body's ninety thousand, right? Alive. Mm-hmm. Okay, where does that money come from, Professor? How does that money get to? Like, how does that money get actually dispersed or whatever? Take us through the <laughs> chain of money. This is one of my favorite. When I teach intro to criminology, I always show students a graph of California budgets in the 80s. And then I show them how all the money just shifted from the, the higher education system to the prison system. Stop, and that's why stop, their tuition is so high. Stop right, right there. So, wait, hold on, hold on. Just I, slow I also, down, slow down, slow also, down. Wait, 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 wait. Everybody <laughs> needs to sit on that for a second. Really sit on that. Can I, can I add some more fodder uh, to that as well? That, that's very important, I think. You can. That, that wasn't mentioned. Yeah, that but also let me. Happened. Let me let me put this in here because I think a lot of people who don't have any, like they won't have any experience with prison. They won't really understand that aspect, but they will understand that um, not only did tuition rates go way high, right at a at a certain point, but there was a proliferation of all of these like kind of like private schools that were willing to take 
uh, that tuition money as well, right? Mm -hmm. You had this weird expensive tuition and a watering down of the higher education, Mm -hmm. as well as this California money getting shifted over to the prisons. And my understanding is it's this is occurring kind of like after the anti-war in Vietnam um, protests and the civil rights that made such a dramatic change that. Um, because I think at that time you see tuitions were like 500 bucks a year or a semester, yep. like real low, yep. real affordable. Yep. And yep. people had a lot of time to sit around and talk with their professors about how this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. And those people that sat around and said, you know what? This is fucking bullshit. Right. And then mm-hmm. Leary's out there like, hey, take LSD. Let's all just drop out. Fuck this shit. Blah, blah, <laughs> blah. Right. That actually had an actual powerful effect on federal policy at a certain point and and i'm not making light of it really when you think about how much how much sacrifice went into civil rights and fighting the vietnam war all right i'm not making light of that the truth of the matter is is that at some point somewhere along the way they made a decision that okay if you're going to go to university you're going to be in debt or you're going to be it's going to be hard and you're not going to have a lot of time and by the way we're going to open up these prisons and I, I mean, I think Danny and I are working on this from different directions, but, you know, I think bringing education into prison yeah, and not like the hell. prison officials running it, but, you know, the, in, the universities going into our prisons as they are in California is one of the most radical things we can do, right? Because you, it's like a Trojan horse. You put the educators back inside the prison and you start to take the prison back and create education mm, give people education to, instead of have, all right now wait, so michael, advocate michael that, so. drop drop the knowledge that you you want to drop and okay. then advocate for the devil so yeah like um going back to the reason why i i feel like just from my own experience i can't say i wasn't up a high uh looking up above i didn't have that the advantage of being out and or or you know having that data and looking from above but from the inside one of the main things was yes the definitely the uh, in the hostilities agreements, because especially at Corcoran and other prisons where they were pitting us against each other to kill each other. Right. Um, having us united scared the shit out of them. But I will remember and never forget the very first day of the very first hunger strike. We all spent everybody sent word around. Right. So we're all like, damn, I wonder how many people are going to go. Are this person going to be down? Are they going to flake? You know, is everybody going to hold it down? And But when the guards first came to feed everybody, because they feed the whole institution at about the same time. And you heard them calling the sergeants, hey, nobody's accepting their trays. The guards started, like, tripping, like nobody's accepting their trays. You could see the look in their eyes. Even the other prisoners that weren't Rasa, weren't black, right? And they yeah. were like, whoa, okay. Even the others, like, damn, okay. And then on the main line, nobody going to yard, nobody going to work. They were fucking scared as fuck, right? Yeah. The whole prison was shut down. They didn't know what the fuck to do, right? They didn't know what More to do. More scared than and, they would have been in a riot. They right. can't, they, they're trained to react to riots. Yes. They're trained to react right. to violence. But how do they yeah. react to that, right? Yeah. So they have to come up with these punitive ways. Okay, we're going to shut down. Pro, we're not going to do this, that, the other. But one more thing that was really important Right. Going back to the money thing and cost. Right. Yeah. Was when especially those of us that had sellies. Right. Yeah. When we decided to to you know what? OK, the the just us not eating is not going to be enough. Right. We need to take it up a notch when they started like, OK, we're going to ride out with you. We're not going to give in at first. They didn't want to give in nothing. But then when we stopped, like our celly would go out to medical and not come back, refuse to come back. Right. 
people stopped accepting cellies. Now, where are they going to put all these people? Mm-hmm. Wow. Right? So they, the buses can't come to the shoe and bring because their buses come every day. But if we're all refusing our cellies, our cellies aren't coming back in. Where are they going to house these people? Right. Medical. Everything's held up. Library cages. Now, nobody wants to come back to their cells. Right. What are they going to do? Force them, throw them in there, and shut the door, right? Maybe. <laughs> they have to let us out to medical, right? Yeah. So that's where it's it, like that really fucked them up because now they had to stop all the buses coming to Corcoran. Corcoran's huge, right? Like it's one of the biggest shoes as well. So I think that also had a, a, a real hand in it. Interesting. For sure. So, so going back, Professor. So, you got this pie chart, and you see the switch. And now, you say funding from California towards prisons away from higher education. So, I'm assuming now we're talking about tax money, California state tax money, right? Yeah, the, the state budget and wherever that. Yeah. That's okay. Largely tax, right? Yeah. So, can I critique education in prison real quick? Oh yeah, I know. I want to hear your point. Yeah, I'm go really ahead. Curious. Okay, so when when that was so. Education has been in prison for a long time. It yeah. ain't nothing new, right, with the movement. But the one thing that it has always been is that it wasn't accessible to everybody, right? It was the old carrot on the stick. It wasn't offered to people in the shoe, even if you weren't in there for disciplinary reasons. And that's a whole other thing we can get into with due process in the law. Sure. We're supposedly yeah. in there for non-disciplinary reasons, meaning a person, Danny, could be in the next door for stabbing a, a cop, stabbing a, a, a teacher, mm. right? On the main line. Yeah. And he's only going to get about three, four years. I'm in there because I'm an associate. Didn't commit no violent act. Right. I'm in there for at least six and then uh, maybe another six, right? Right. So the punishments aren't, <laughs> punishments aren't rational to the offense. But yeah. right. Danny could go back out to the main line and go back to school and all that. I can't get no education programs inside the shoe, right? Yeah. And another thing, the higher the level, the security is like a level four there's zero to, to, to almost 1% college programs in there. They cater to the lower level. Specifically, when they first brought education programs inside, we fought because I was part of the fight against that, is they brought them to the SNY yards first, yeah. right? Even yeah. the, the, yeah. the paid jobs, the PIA, the prison slave uh, industry, right? right? Because those are the good paying jobs. But they don't want to do them on these level fours, on these active yards of general population because they're always on lockdown. They're always fighting, riots, blah, blah, blah. But if we do it on this SNY, which is the protective custody dropout, we can get into all that. What they are, they're programmers. They don't get locked down. So they're going to continue to produce these uh, products for the industry, right, to make mm. money, et cetera. And programs and the teachers don't have to go in there and be afraid of these so-called worst of the worst violent gang members, right? Where they're in a, a protective custody yard or a lower level yard where these prisoners are, are set to go home at a certain time. They have less time, so they're less likely to commit any type of violence in there. So what you're saying is, is that on some level, too, the separation of the so-called validated members is to make sure that the labor situation they got set up doesn't get delayed or fucked with exactly and you could use the education piece too as to this right so for people who are lifers etc want to come home they always suggest oh get a ba get a aa get an education right yeah but if you're on a, a yard where there's no programs because it's always locked down yeah. and they're telling you well you don't like it guess what drop out 
Drop out of your gang. Disavow your gang. Come over here to the S&Y yard and get programs. So people have been doing that, right? right. Because they want to go home. Right. So that's what I mean by the carrot on the stick. Until I think that these worst of the worst need education the most yep. because yep. they're sitting there with nothing, right? Right. But they're not being so provided say, by it. Go I'll ahead. say two things about education. One, it has to be controlled by the education by the educators not by the prison system and two it needs to be as universal as possible and that's where i think what california has done rolling out community college coursework in all of the 35 prisons right it's not perfect it's still working on it but every prison pre-pandemic had an associate's degree program that's incredible because what what you have to be working towards is universal access in order to shift the energy from incarceration to education right and that's a that's an explicit budget shift in the state to fund the community colleges to do that and, and instead of incarcerating. But right? I think you should also give thanks and, and uh, some credit, rather, to the hunger strikers ourselves, because that was one of the uh, the demands that right. we were asking for was <clears throat> education yep. inside solitary yep. confinement. Right. Yep. And that yep. kind of opened the door for these other programs. Yep. Right. Yeah. So so where are we at currently uh, with solitary confinement in California? What's the status? Is it better? Is it worse? Or are we going into even weirder territories with it? <laughs> That's for you, Professor. That's yeah. I was going to say I have a lot of opinions, but yeah. Well, uh, on the surface, we have made some at least symbolically very powerful progress. So, you know, we've been talking around the hunger strikes, but in the 2010s, there was all of this organizing. It resulted in class action litigation. It resulted in a lot of the oversight I've talked about, right? Like some preliminary data suggesting that the gang validation is nonsense. Um, and Pelican Bay is now operating as a largely lower security institution. I've literally seen pictures of murals on those solid concrete walls and the doors being open and not using that as this long term um, solitary confinement facility anymore. That's a huge win. People all over the country are looking to California and to these policies. Um, but the cynic in me has a lot of trouble with all of this. One, the settlement was a cap of five years in uh, shoe conditions. That's, you know, the United Nations says 15 days could amount to torture. So that's a pretty dramatic difference. Uh, two, as we've always had, right, we moved from the adjustment center to the therapeutic treatment module. We've moved from the shoe to all of these little units that are harder to see all over the prison system mm -hmm. that have different names that are keeping people locked down in solitary confinement like conditions, sometimes even worse because they haven't been subject to the litigation of Madrid. And so there's no expectation of getting out of that cell an hour a day or having that group therapy and that therapeutic treatment module. You know, if that's all you've got, it's better than nothing. Um, so I think there is a real issue here. And we're seeing the prison system fighting back with the gang validation. You know, the courts say this is nonsense. You can't use it. And the prison system says, well, we're going to bring it up at your parole hearing and we're going to mm -hmm. use it to bring new criminal charges against you. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe we can't use it as a basis for putting you in the shoe, but it's still going to control your life and your sentence to prison. So I think, um, you know, on the one hand, I don't want to dismiss. I think what the hunger strikers, like I said, what they were able to do in terms of changing the narrative and getting people out of the shoe who'd been in there for decades. Phenomenal in terms of the work we have to do in the institutions to make it humane. We have a really long way to go. Let me just stop right there real quick. Sean, think about the contradiction there. The correctional facility is there to punish people who won't follow the law. But when the judge creates the law to be followed, 
that correctional, that same one refuses to follow the law. Yep. Think yep. about that. Yep. Um, go ahead, Danny. So I want to say, um, yeah, the professor brings up a lot of great points, right? And at the same time, there was a lot of these um, uh, goals or accomplishments that were that have been won through the hunger strike movement, the Asker case. But it's also important to understand that CDCR, in in, in their, um, they're not going to take a day off and say, okay, you guys won, and that's it. Like, no, they're still coming up ways <laughs> to retaliate. Why? Why? What is their motivation in order to preserve something? Why wouldn't they see? Like, maybe they could make more money doing a humane thing. Why are they so focused? institutionally over decades of i mean dude when 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 i read about or heard about um i can't think of his name right now but the guy who was in charge of men's county jail was ripping off and and and, uh, and all that stuff right all that is sheriff right sheriff yeah. Baca, Baca, Baca. right Baca. I mean, right. which one? Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I got some. But for but you. but the re- but but the thing is, is when I when I see all that, I think there's something structurally it, in the institution that encourages in or pushes or attracts people who want to steal and or punish and or enjoy some sort of masochistic or sadistic aspect uh, that's stuck in the penal system. On top of that the amount of money that comes with working in a high security yeah. prison in a supermax yeah. what, what the, the the extra money that comes with overtime during a lockdown emergency lockdown like it's just you know it's money too though right you mean like that's... yeah yeah but i'm i'm saying like from you the could, sadomasochist uh, you could deal. you could very well easily go like you know what we're going to do we're going to give you overtime and we're going to do humane things and you're going to get paid the same amount the only difference is you're not scalding anyone with hot water. You're not going to have to do that. We don't want you to do it. It's just, it's okay. This guy can draw pictures of his Aztec queen on a on a on a on a pyramid and he's not going to be validated. We don't need to do any of that right now. We're actually literally, right? We're not doing that. But you're still going to make the same amount of money. Why can't that happen? Because it's still the us versus them mentality. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going to tell you, if you ever get a chance, watch that. Uh, it's a documentary called um, Exterminate All the Brutes. Yeah. So it goes all the way back to uh, white settler colonial, how they like the inquisitions, how punishment is embedded in their culture and their, uh, I would say, DNA, I might argue. I don't know. It's pretty deep, though. And it goes into how they um, were so sadistic with punishment and, and all this type of stuff, you know, imprisoning people, torturing people. Well, I prefer, way back. I, prefer to th- I prefer to think of it as not necessarily, quote unquote, um, a, a, a potential person or, or or for lack of a better term, an ethnicity that's 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 in that. But I would say this. We hail from Rome. Right. Like at some level, we hail from Rome. And if you look at Roman society, it was built on slavery. OK, so these inherent structures, there's something about empire that requires there to be an oppressed class. It's that- power. It's like the Stanford experiment. You give somebody power over somebody else. They're always going to abuse it. Maybe. Yeah, I, Go I, ahead, Professor. Sorry. No, no. I, I mean, I think there you know, I have not lived in the shoe. And, and so I only know from what people have told me. And I think there are people who are sadomasochists on both sides, right? I mean, I've heard stories about people who are incarcerated, and staff who are really terrible. But I think 
it's a just in the way that in the shoe we don't want to like that the vast majority of people don't belong there i think it's important to realize that the vast majority of correctional officers aren't sadomasochists right they might have been turned into them right <laughs> um and i think living under them but but i think we have to understand it's i mean i think the empire thing makes sense but we have to understand that the institutional incentives are all wrong right, right? like every incentive they have is to reinforce this us versus them, particularly when it comes to validation in the shoe, because right. the entire system is built on the idea that there are these guys who are the worst of the worst, who they have to protect society against. And when that mythology is challenged, it challenges their very existence, their professionalism, their institution, their their livelihood. And, and there is a visceral reaction to fight back and people really lose sight of the reality, I think. One, right, so there's that institutional infrastructure of everything depending on this myth of the George Jackson or the or the the worst of the worst who we have to be protected from. But I think there's also just the corruption of working in that institution day to day. Right. right. I mean, these are horrific jobs but to go in there. They, if they, you're if you yeah. start out as a good person and what you do every day is you go in and you lock someone in a cell and all your colleagues are telling you that they're a monster. Like, how do you do that without coming to believe it? Right. And, I mean, I don't understand. Like, either you quit. Or you internalize it because you can't like as human beings, we can't like we can't treat a brother that way. And so you it's really psychologically corrupting, I think, in the in the way of the Stanford prison experiment. But that's 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 to say that the institution is brutalizing everyone. Well, right? they and, are, and, though, and but there's the also talking the, about when you want to so talk powerful. about sorry, but psychologically. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. So when free staff, teachers, professors, medical staff come in, what do they always tell them? Don't talk to the prison. They're going to manipulate you, right? right. Yeah. They manipulate yeah. people. Don't yeah. be nice to them. They're going to manipulate you. They're going to take advantage of you. Yeah. Don't show yeah. no weakness, right? So they already embed this this uh, dehumanization of us that we are these monsters. And I think that's also something important, how they tell you guys that. Like, you're already coming in. Oh, whatever this person, he's going to try to get me to bring a cell phone. He's going to try to get me to bring drugs. He's going to try to get me to fall in love with them, et cetera, right? Especially mm -hmm. females working there. They have this code, right? They have this this uh, rules and regulations that staff must follow. It's called overfamiliarity. Yeah, you can't even be nice. Oh, that's what is. And then you say about fluidness, and that's so ambiguous. What is overfamiliarity? Right. And if they could scare you as a staff member to to fire you or or discipline you for overfamiliarity. You're going to not want to be familiar. You're going to treat these. No, I'm not going to lose my one job. Of, one of for the this. stories Professor Ryder's book has in it is a story about a medical staff person who was scared to tell the truth about the murder of one of the inmates uh, in one of these programs. Do you recall that? What was that? Was that the, the, the hot water one or what was that? And she eventually got a another prisoner to eventually reveal or let out actually what really went behind the scenes as to the death of this inmate. Yeah, there I mean there are so many of these stories. There's there's Von Dorch who was scalded, there's the prisoner more recently who was pepper sprayed and he had a he had a um breathing tube and right. he pulled it out because it burned so badly and they said it was a suicide even right. though like he was tortured to death so but i think i think this is actually a really good example of what i'm saying about the institution creating the so-called monsters and right. that's you know we think of the von dorch case and i think even in madrid that's that's the man who was scalded and his skin peeled off because he had been smearing feces on himself in the shoe 
we think of that as just this horrific case that now maybe wouldn't happen again. But it turns out those cases have happened again and again all over the country. There was a similar famous case in Florida of a guy, exact same thing, someone in isolation who smears themselves in feces and the only way staff can figure out to clean him is to dip him in scalding water and his skin burns off, right? This is a this is a thing that has happened again and again, which suggests that it's not some psychopath on a one-off case. It's right. the institution creating right. these impossible situations. There's a right? pattern. What do you do with a guy who's in solitary confinement for life? There's you're you're helpless. And the other and, th- and these are staff who have no mental health training and no resources. What are they supposed to do? Also, one th- you know what? Now that you're here, now that we've got you guys here, I don't really want to ask you. Corcoran Killer. That case um, I believe that gentleman was in a solitary confinement with another selling. He was in some kind of lockdown. He was supposed to be on regular watch and somehow he was able to de- decapitate his celly before they came around and got him and the prison guards had no idea what had been going on and they're not quite sure what that is. I mean, let's, let's, um, Let's also keep it real, right? Like, so you have this new, like, L.A. Times recently reported about the L.A. Sheriff's gangs, right? Yeah. The 3,000 boys, a group of sheriffs that Uh work in the county jail that are a gang, right? Right. Have the same tattoos. Part of their initiation is beating people up, cracking their skulls, et cetera. They got the skull crackers. Um, That's literally their name, skull crackers, a bunch of white cops that beat up people with flashlights and and part of their initiation is cracking their skull, right? Right. So in prison, there was uh, not too long ago, it was around the Castile decision time. In fact, Castile was making headway with assembly people. So all this like hunger strike was nothing new. Um, Mm. Reaching out to legislators and having outside organizers uh, working was nothing new. Um, Castile did do a lot of that and he managed to get Gloria Romero who at that time was a uh, assembly person or somebody in Sacramento to do an investigation against what they called the Green Wall. And it was specifically at Salinas Valley. Um, a warden was involved and the gang investigators. They were called the Green Wall. They had these symbols of a GW, um, all this this crazy uh, symbolism. And they were validating people and beating people up, setting people up. So. When you say that, how did this happen in prison where nobody's seen when it's supposed to be high security? All these guards, there's nepotism, right? They yeah. all live in these rural uh, country bumpkin uh, cities, right? Right. Not to diss anybody who's from there. Right. But these cities that support this prison, they all live around the same. They all go to each other's kids' uh, baseball games, birthday parties. So they're not going to snitch on each other. Right. They have a code of silence, Right. right? And in that case, there was one woman who was going to testify and say something. She found a dead rat in her car or in her mailbox, something like that, scared her, right? Right. But this goes all the way up to the top where even the warden knew about all this stuff, right? Right. So they did an investigation. I believe some of them were convicted. So when you say things like, even how does a gun get in prison? Right. How do cell phones get in prison? Right. How do drugs get in prison? Right. Right. How do people get killed and, and covered up in prison, right? Guards mm-hmm. have a lot to do with all this Of stuff. course. And specifically gangs of guards, right? Right. Prison guard gangs. So 
I think that's something also that uh, needs to be looked at. As, and, and when you go into the psychology and mentality of this, right, yeah. of being brutal and, and being uh, uh, sadistic, etc., they begin to form gangs, and, and, and these are part of their initiation. So that culture, if you just come in the system, you start working for the California Department of Corrections out of the academy, and you come with us, and we're part of this gang, oh, you're going to work in the shoe? We're going to test you. Are you a snitch? Are you going to snitch on your you live in, you live on our block, bro? Now you're part of our family, right? Better. Like you better not snitch on us. Whatever you see here, you keep to yourself. You just follow us and that's it. Man. It's so, very symbiotic, right? I mean, the prison system depends on the existence of the gangs and they encourage them. And the and the prison staff, I mean, LA County jails are the best example, but the prison staff are um more of a gang than the incarcerated people, I think. Often. Pelican Bay had a case of a white uh, correctional officer who so allegedly was working with uh, white supremacists in prison mm-hmm. to set people up to get stabbed, pulling out their, their information, like their confidential information. So, hey, this guy's a snitch or this yeah. guy's a child molester. Right. Right. Yeah. And you're going to take the word of a cop and say, oh, here's the paperwork, you know, and kill somebody. Or because of a cop. That's an interesting point because the, what we're yeah, what sorry. we're entering. Not in, to say that he probably wasn't or wasn't. Uh, no, no, no. But it's, an, it's, but it's the fact that they're involved in this type of. It's stuff. It's an interesting point that you're making, and and I wanna. It's true about the sort of symbiotic relationship between these various quote unquote official gangs and then the gangs that are in the prisons that aren't allowed to be gangs, right? But what's interesting is is that you also. As a result of that contradictory system, you're getting an extra judicial sentence, a shadow yep. sentence. So somebody can be executed without due process through yep. this process. And and it's weird because we even as a society, we don't really say it. But like when Jeffrey Dahmer got killed, it was kind of like, I mean, justice has been served. Right. Who's crying over that dude? Right. You know what I mean? And then when, when you say child molesters and listen, I'm no proponent for child molesters, but I'm just saying when you say that and they get that something happens to him, we don't know. Right. We don't know what happened to him. He just slipped in the shower. That's in his head fell off. Right. We all kind of go like, well, justice was served. So here we are, Professor. I think um, I think we've at least shined a light on a lot of the issues. Where do you see? Where do you see California going in the future with solitary confinement? Where are we going? <laughs> I mean, do the sci fi people have it right? Eventually, there'll just be a pill that makes you mentally feel like you did 20 years. And that will be Damn. a deterrent. I mean, where are we going? I, I think I see two roads. I'm sure there are more. I think one road is we keep not paying attention to what's happening in our prisons, right? Another power of the hunger strike was that it really put a spotlight on the prisons and everyone paid attention for a minute. And that was incredibly powerful. Um, I think we're already sort of attention is waning in some ways. And I think that's really scary. So, uh, you know, I think one possibility is we don't pay enough attention and the prison system gets better and better at doing solitary confinement in a way that's hard to see. And that's right. Pelican Bay was better than the adjustment center where George Jackson was. It was very hard to see the harm, especially after Madrid, when the staff weren't beating prisoners up anymore. Um, The People like me are still trying to explain to to lawyers and the courts 
exactly what the harm is to gather the evidence to document the psychological harm of solitary confinement. Um, so I think, you know, there's a real fear that it'll continue to be harder and harder to see. Right. We don't we don't tear people apart in the public square anymore. We've gotten really good at it. And I think we'll get better as society gets more modern. And that that is one. Right. I mean, it is the pill that you take as a metaphor for that, that we continue to torture people in ways that no one can see and we get better and better at it. Um, right. I think the other path is a path where we find an alternative model such that there isn't a prison system as we know it today. And, you know, for me, I think all institutions are troubled, including the academy and the public university system. But for me, the the viable way forward that I see um, steps towards in California is to try to move that money back out of the prison system and back into the education system and give more and more people pathways, particularly to leadership positions, right? Like everybody else in this room who's gotten out of prison and is working in their communities and demonstrating that you have leadership capability and that everyone's assumptions about what having been incarcerated means are pretty wrong. Um, and, and just creating more and more pathways for, for that, for this, this sense that there are, you know, we have incarcerated millions of people tens of millions of people have criminal records and bringing those people into our communities and realizing that, Oh, they're just like us in running leadership positions, I think is one of the most powerful things we can do to, to break down the system, right. To kind of slowly dissolve it. And I, I see those as two possibilities. Um, but I'm curious what others think. Well, um, I actually think we're headed for a perfect storm for the next decade because I do see work careers and education losing the value that they used to have in the old days yeah. and not being as available. Yeah. And this concept of, um, various degrees of confining people being something that um, is going to be an option until somebody can figure out a better plan. Michael, yep. come on, brother. Bring some sunshine. Are we? Is there, is there any hope for crime in that? Oh, I, I would say it's, it's, from my perspective, being inside and now working in social justice outside, right, especially during the BLM movement, um, everything that's been taking place with Trump, um, where we're at now, right? Whoa. We've been through a lot through this pandemic, man. We've been through a lot. Everything's There's been a changing. lot of, you know, ideas, revolution that died down. Yep. You know, people were talking about land back, you know, decolonize. Yep. It died down. Maybe yep. it's rising back up. I heard in other states. So it's fluid, right? Maybe the war but, with China will change that. I mean, dude, there's a lot, right? right but I would say for the most part from the work that I see doing, there's two paths, right? There's a reformist path where we're looking at Sweden, prettier prisons, more humane prisons. And then we're looking at when something like Trump happens or somebody, uh, some more people of color being killed in our streets and people rise up yeah. and say, tear down this system and revolution happens, then we'll have an abolition. Right. All right. Danny Murillo, bring us home, baby. <clears throat> yeah. Um, as the professor mentioned, two things that she I wanted to point out that she mentioned. One was that we are at the five-year mark of the Ashker versus Brown case, right? Yeah. And um, and she also talked about um, the attention of the hunger strike and, and um, the into hostilities. That attention kind of waning, right? And so for us, you know, um, this is part of uh, what we're doing here is bringing that back to the forefront, right? Yeah. And really trying to highlight um, the struggle that uh, incarcerated people and people out here. Um, participated in to 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 end long-term solitary confinement so this is you know in one way um us trying to kind of lift that um focus back up and, and put it back in, in, into um the public but also at the same time to show people right 
um, that people that have been incarcerated and validated as a prison gang associate like myself, like Michael, and others that have been labeled prison gang members um, can transform themselves, right? Can, with the right support, can choose a different path in life without having to um, be a confidential informant, without having to... um, you know, what they call drop out and go to a, a, a sensitive needs yard, right? That transformation is possible. It's not the environment. It's the individual. And if you support that individual and the environment that they're in, they'll be able to create those opportunities to change, right? And, and me, Michael, and all of the other guests that we're going to have yeah. are an example of that. Right. All right. Big Lux. I just want to give a shout out to Underground Scholars, Danny Marillo, Mike. Everybody joined us. Professor, thank you so much. Thank you for the great conversation. Yes. I want to give a shout out to uh, University of California, Irvine, for Mm -hmm. not only being in a great location, but also lending their intellectual expertise through uh, (laughs) Professor Ryder. Uh, Mass incarceration. It's a great read, actually. Please get (laughs) that and read it to get learned up on all those things. And also her other book, 23-7, available on Kindle. You can read it right now. Um, also, my law firm, Ovando Bowen, LLP. We wear braids to court. Let the tomahawks fly. <laughs> That's right. The awesome. best legal representation that money can buy. <laughs> oh, Blue Eyes, have you finally been scared straight? Are you going to get on the straight and narrow? Definitely, definitely. I'm not, I'm not going to fuck around anymore. All right, stop I, it. I, I stopped doing the gang stuff. So <laughs> No more talking to Wizard. Yeah, right, right, stop no talking wizard. to Wizard, bro. I cut him out of my life completely. <laughs> Sean at Movemental Media, Movemental Dot Media. Sorry, um, for all your audience needs. Uh, Pulpo Beard Oil. Pulpo Beard Oil. If you want to stay manly, but you also want to smell good. Pulpo smell Beard. Good. Sponsor. Stop smelling like shit. Right. Sponsor of the show. We love you, Pulpo Beard Oil. Right. Um, Schwartz. Schwartzkopf. What do you got? I just want to thank you guys for coming in. It fucking the stories were scary as fuck, and and for people who don't know all about it, it's um it's crazy and it needs more attention. I'm glad you guys are doing that. It makes and sense that Sh- as well. Schwartz is scared. Uh, he's scared of any kind of police. One time he saw six police and he ran the other way and asked Steve, "Is this guilt by association?" And then he just ran off. He wasn't trying to get validated. No, he no, was in bro, witness. He, he, he was in the witness. Sec. Yeah, he was in WinSec, bro. Hey, man, he was, avoid, <laughs> avoid all interactions with cops, bro. Yeah, yeah he's probably sure. got like eight sure. warrants or something. I don't know what's going on. His wife's got a warrant on him right now. Jeez. <laughs> all right, that's a fact. More to come. More to come. Enlightening, entertaining. Any shout, shout outs? Oh, Professor yeah. Ryder, any shout outs? It was just lovely to be with all of you. So, so excited about what Danny and Michael are doing in particular in our communities. And also, please come back uh, on other topics or whatever. Anytime that you have an idea that you would like to, to, to talk about, please come back. Uh, you're a great guest. Great conversation. You can talk about the prison education program that she's running at. Yeah, Donovan let's State talk prison. about Underground Scholars and Lifted on the next one. Yeah, yes. let's do yeah, that. Absolutely. All right. Cool. And like, like we, do. we do about this time, adios amigos from the Hard Luck Show. Yeah.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.